0: I think something that a lot of people aren't grasping is how rapidly the Republican Party is radicalized. The Republican Party has become infused with just blatant anti-Semites. To them, I think it became obvious that targeting the trans community, they could incite fear and disgust and panic. It's very similar to the way they ginned up the panic about critical race theory. Trump modeled all of this for the next generation of fascists or want to be fascists in his wake. <laughs>
1: Welcome to episode 133 of the Refuse Fascism Podcast, a podcast brought to you by volunteers with Refuse Fascism. I'm Sam Goldman, one of those volunteers and host of the show. Refuse Fascism exposes, analyzes, and stands against the very real danger and threat of fascism coming to power in the United States. In today's episode, we're sharing an interview with journalist and author Sarah Posner. We'll talk about key fronts in the Christian fascist movement, in particular, anti-Semitism, Christian Zionism, and the targeting of trans folks. We're glad to have Sarah back on the show. But first, thanks to everyone who goes the extra step and rates and reviews on Apple Podcasts, shares, and comments on social media or YouTube. It helps us reach more listeners, and we read everyone. Here are a couple messages from the last week, this time from folks on Instagram. At Zillabrave wrote, the rise of the far right and fascism is awful. I can't bear it. And at Affinity Girl wrote, thank you, Teddy and Sam. You're both amazing and we appreciate you. Well, Zillabrave, we shouldn't have to bear it. And to Affinity Girl, we appreciate you. So after listening to today's episode, go help us find more people who want to refuse fascism by rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts. In encouraging your friends and family who listen to do the same. Subscribe, follow so you never miss an episode. And of course, continue all that sharing and commenting on social media. Before we get to the interview, we just gotta talk about Tuesday. No matter what happens Tuesday in the midterms, it is clear that the fight against fascism continues. Whether we see widespread fascist victories, which we cannot submit to, whether we continue sinking under a stalemate of quote-unquote balance in Congress. Whether violence erupts to affect the outcomes or the fascists are constrained to threats, voter suppression, and intimidation. In every one of those scenarios and any other that may arise, the onus remains on the people in our millions to act outside of politics as usual, to confront and defeat fascism. It is going to take real political struggle, fierce struggle, blunt truth telling, and nonviolent mass opposition in the public square. We have a fight on our hands, and this fight needs you. Listening to, discussing, debating, sharing, and contributing to this show, and most importantly, the work of refusing fascism, is vital. We know what has been falling short, trying to ignore the threat, retreating into our private lives, relying on voting alone. Leaving to tweeting, scandalizing, or quote unquote canceling. On this podcast, we get deep into these issues of fascism, not just because we enjoy engaging discussions, not because fascism is interesting, but because fascism is an existential threat and stopping it is no superficial endeavor. This is not a matter of taste, but a matter of necessity. It is necessary to deeply understand and engage with these issues, not skim the surface. And it's necessary to do that together with others because that's where our power lies. On this show, we'll continue to educate people on the roots nature trajectory of the real and present danger of fascism in the United States to spotlight those rising up and to work together to understand and unite to stop an American fascist movement that imperils all of humanity. But we can't do it alone. Donate generously, Give whatever you can to support the show at refusefascism.org. Lend your skills. Join the network by signing up at refusefascism.org. Be sure to follow us on social media at refusefascism. And most importantly, send us your thoughts and share your questions and how you are acting based on what you hear on the show. With that, here is my interview with Sarah. Today, I am so glad to welcome back Sarah Posner. She's the author of Fun How White Christian Nationalists Powered the Trump Presidency and the Devastating Legacy They Left Behind. She's a reporting fellow with Type Investigations, her investigating reporting and analysis on the religious right in Republican politics has appeared all over. Rolling Stone, The New Republic, Vice, HuffPost, The Nation, New York Times, The Washington Post, The American Prospect, Talking Points Memo, and I probably missed a bunch of other publications. She is a widely cited expert. She's a frequent commentator on religion and politics, and I'm so glad to welcome her back to the show. Welcome, Sarah.
0: Thanks for having me again, Sam.
1: Like many people, I have sadly been following Doug Mastriano and his campaigning. And I know that you've been following as well. And I just wanted to start our conversation today on something that he said recently that I think a lot of people didn't really understand how heavy it was. Mm -hmm. He was speaking. He was challenged on his anti-Semitism. And his wife interrupted, came up and responded. I'm not quoting word for word. Her basic response was you will not find bigger supporters of Israel than the two of us.
0: It's actually worse than that. I think it was something along the lines of we're bigger supporters of Israel than a lot of Jews are.
1: Yes, than a lot of Jews are. And I think it was directed at the person. Why? Now, would she say something like that? Yeah. So Mastriano's
0: campaign has been infused from the beginning with what might be characterized as philo semitism but is actually anti-Semitism. So let's unpack that a little bit. A lot of his campaign events, including the events at which he announced his candidacy for governor, had featured people who are not Jewish wearing tallit or people who are not Jewish blowing a shofar. So basically like the appropriation of Jewish ritual objects for proving what a great Christian patriot Doug Mastriano is. What's happening here is two things at once. One is Mastriano is running this Christian nationalist campaign. We've all read about it. We've all heard it talked about. We've all seen the evidence from his campaign stops, his events with Mike Flynn and Roger Stone, and all of that. But he's also infusing it with basically messianic Judaism. Messianic Judaism is basically evangelical Christianity that is injected with a, like a heavy dose of We are getting back to our Jewish roots, the roots of Jesus Christ, who was a rabbi, by appropriating Jewish ritual, Jewish prayer, Hebrew words, that sort of thing. And it's very tied in with their views of the end times and what's going to happen either in preparation for Jesus Christ's return or after his return. So it's all tangled up with a lot of eschatology and theology. But it's also tied up with the idea of what makes America a Christian nation. They're Christian nationalists, so they believe that America is a Christian nation, that it was founded as a Christian nation, and it should be governed as a Christian nation. But a key component of that is that America, the Christian nation, should, quote unquote, support Israel. In their view, supporting Israel means supporting any right-wing government of Israel, supporting the occupation, supporting, you know, the annexation of Palestinian land. So supporting Israel doesn't mean, oh, we really like going to Israel and meeting uh, people of diverse political viewpoints, or we really like going to Israel and going to Bethlehem and recognizing that Palestinians live there and live there under occupation. It's not like that. It's a very right-wing Zionist view of what Israel is or should be. And that's what they mean by supporting Israel. In this ecosystem, there are, you know, good Jews and bad Jews. And the good Jews are the kind of Jews who support the right-wing government of Israel. And the bad Jews are the ones who don't (laughs) and who are against the occupation and against building more settlements and so on. That's what's happening here. And that's what happened when Trump put that post on Truth Social, where he said that Jews really needed to get their act together before it's too late. That's what this was about as well. He was saying in that post that the evangelicals like me, they get it. And the Jews who don't like me don't get it. And they better get their act together. Better get their act together for what? Because what these evangelicals who support Trump want is either to convert the Jews or you know, maybe something bad will happen to them, particularly when Jesus comes back. And if they don't convert, they'll perish in a lake of brimstone. In Mastriano's case, it's both exemplifying this Christian nationalist fusion with Christian Zionism, but it's also his campaign and his whole shtick really exemplifies this marriage of evangelical Christianity with this messianic evangelical attempt to make Judaism evangelical, basically.
1: Yeah. And that I think is extremely dangerous. And I think that a lot of people are unfortunately caught off guard when they conflate what they see as pro-Israel sentiment. People in this country in the United States who are of Jewish heritage or identity. I don't think that people see the danger of that. And I think that your point, this good Jew versus bad Jew dichotomy is extremely important to pay attention to. A lot of people
0: don't immediately recognize what is bound up in this statement of, I support Israel because I think that there are a lot of American Jews who they're not necessarily fans of Bibi Netanyahu. They're not necessarily fans of the settlements, but they still believe in the idea of a Jewish state and the idea of Israel. They just kind of wish that there could be a two-state solution or they're kind of in this middle zone. They're the right-wing Zionist types. And then there are the anti-occupation over on the other side, Jewish Voice for Peace, J Street is a little spectrum, but then I think that there are a lot of people in this kind of fuzzy middle who, for a multitude of reasons, aren't really comfortable getting into the politics of it. But they're also not really comfortable with the occupation, and their identity isn't necessarily bound up with "quote unquote" supporting Israel. But they would still not want to be accused of not supporting Israel. I think what's dangerous is. It's very insulting to claim that you as a Christian can identify who are the quote unquote right Jews and not right Jews. And I think it makes a lot of Jews very uncomfortable. And I think a lot of Jews are uncomfortable with criticizing the evangelical quote unquote support for Israel because they just have sort of a general, I think this is just kind of a trope that is embedded in a lot of people's thinking that like, oh, you know, Israel has so many enemies and so it should take all the friends that it can get, even if these friends think that we're all going to die at the end. It's very complicated like that. But I think the really dangerous thing and the thing that I was thinking about when I wrote a piece recently for Moment Magazine where I talked about the Republican party's Christian supremacy problem, by setting themselves up as the arbiters of what is a good Jew. This is another dangerous element of Christian nationalism where Christian nationalists are not only saying we're a Christian nation, we should be governed as a Christian nation And we love the Jews as long as they're the right kind of Jews who agree with us on Israel and that sort of thing. And the rest of the Jews, they really need to convert. They really need to get on the bandwagon here. This is classic anti-Semitism, saying that Jews need to find Jesus, then they'll be okay. Or Jews need to agree with our political view of the world or of Israel, Israeli-Palestinian conflict. This is also anti-Semitic this view of Jews and their role in Jesus and Jesus coming back is so embedded in American evangelical Christianity. Now, I don't know if you saw this story the other day about this Republican who's running for Congress in Texas. He's the author of a fictionalized retelling of the Anne Frank story in which both Anne Frank and her father eventually come to accept Jesus there's no storyline or no topic that they won't infuse with this idea that like Jews have to find Jesus. I think that that's really, really helpful.
1: And we were talking earlier before we started recording how right now we're in a situation where there's almost anti-Semitic Olympics going on, Mm -hmm. where each candidate or person of influence, seems to be trying to outdo each other in their cruelty and just the absolute outrageousness of what they're saying. Now, some of it in the case of Mastriano and Trump is almost identical. Saying, I'm going to say we probably love Israel more than a lot of Jews do, is pretty identical to no president has done more for Israel than I have." Those are almost identical, but there's a litany of examples of people vying for positions of political power. Also, just people of prominence, not necessarily vying for political power, utilizing the most disgusting, Mm -hmm. (laughs) cruel, I don't have another word for it, language. And it, to me, I don't know how widespread this feeling is amongst other people who were raised Jewish, but it seems like it doesn't even make a news story. It will be kind of mentioned, but it is, oh, that's just talk. I feel that that talk matters.
0: Absolutely. I think something that a lot of people aren't grasping is how rapidly the Republican Party is radicalizing. Basically, what we saw over the past, let's say, seven years is that Trump comes on the scene And the national political press just sort of sees him as a businessman, reality star, you know, and isn't this interesting that this businessman and this real estate mogul and reality star is running for president. What the far right sees, white supremacists, neo-Nazis, is somebody who's speaking their language, is somebody who is representing their interests. You saw over the course of his primary campaign, when he was getting support of people like David Duke. And he would be asked about it in the national media and he would dance around it. In the past, candidates would have to say, I denounce anti-Semitism. David Duke does not represent me. I do not want David Duke's support. He should go away and go back to the coal he crawled out of. That used to be what the politicians would have to say if David Duke supported them. And so I think that Trump changed this game that's played by the political press where The candidate has the support of some really extreme outrageous person. The press goes to the candidate and says, you know, will you denounce this person? And Trump, perfected this game where he would just do this little dance, very fine people on both sides, et cetera, et cetera. And then finally the press would give up. And then it just becomes part of who Trump is. Trump modeled all of this for the next generation of fascists or wannabe fascists in his wake. The press is never going to get an answer from Doug Mastriano or Marjorie Taylor Green about why Marjorie Taylor Green went to a conference with Hitler admiring Nick Fuentes. You're not going to get an answer from Doug Mastriano about why he's hanging out with Christian nationalists and espousing Christian nationalism and hanging out with anti-Semites. They're never going to get those answers. And so after a while, I think the impulse for the political press is just to retreat to like business as usual, because doing that doesn't get them the thing that they were used to getting, if that makes sense. I think what we're seeing is a kind of laziness kind of sets in, that you just kind of wonder, okay, what's the point of going back to these people time and time again when they're not going to give a straight answer, or they're just going to yell at me, or just say fake news, or whatever the answer of the day is? Then we see all kinds of different examples: the candidate who wrote the book about Anne Frank and wrote the novel about Anne Frank. At this point, what it tells you is the GOP has become like a cesspool of extremism, but it also tells you that there is so much of it happening that it's almost impossible to really. Keep up with it, and I think that then that on top of the political press letting it go, I think then it just is a factor of it's so overwhelming to stay on top of all of it that it's just becomes sort of impossible. It's a very sad state of affairs.
1: Yes, and I was thinking as you were talking, and you talked about this cesspool of extremism, and we've been talking about the anti-Semitism that is rampant within. The GOP, people either in political power already or vying for it. One of the things that you had mentioned in the article that you had referenced was this is a party that, at least in word, champions this religious freedom. They're the people that care about religious freedom. That's on the one hand. And on the other hand, their absolute incessant attack on American Jews. Is it more than hypocrisy? Is it something else?
0: There are two things going on right now with the Republican Party and this question. One is that the Republican Party has become infused with just blatant anti-Semites. The candidate in Oklahoma who was just like a blatant anti-Semite, Carrie Lake, is running for governor of Arizona. For some strange reason, she endorses this candidate in Oklahoma why? He said the most horrible, blatantly anti-Semitic things. And then the local Jewish community organization in Arizona calls her out for it. And she says, okay, I retract the endorsement, but that begs the question, why was it important for you to endorse him in the first place? On the one hand, there's this blatant anti-Semitism and these candidates who are like dancing around it like her. And then there's the strong strain of Christian Zionism and Christian nationalism where they would never say, oh, Hitler was right or something like that. They know that that line is not one to be crossed but they still believe that America is a Christian nation and everybody should be Christian. It's their duty to evangelize the Jews and the Jews won't be right until they find Jesus. That there's the right kind of Jew who loves Israel and there's the wrong kind of Jew who doesn't love Israel. Both of these things are happening at once and everybody is pretending like the Christian Zionists should continue to get away with not calling out these blatant, anti-Semitic, Hitler-loving types in their own party. I really feel like there was a time, pre-Trump, when if there was a blatantly Hitler-loving person, the Christian Zionists who claimed to love the Jews in Israel would have been like, that person is unacceptable. We don't want that person in our party. But that is not happening right now, because what you're seeing is somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene, I hate to keep bringing her up, but she's just the perfect example, and she's also the person of the future in the Republican Party. So on the one hand, she'll go to Nick Fuentes's conference and speak at it. And then on the other hand, you know, claim to be a great supporter of Israel. And she doesn't get any pushback from the Christian Zionist groups or the other Christian right groups who claim to love Israel. And so she gets to exist in both of these worlds and not suffer any intra-party consequences. And that is definitely something new. Obviously, Christian Zionism is anti-Semitic. But the debate was, is it okay because they somehow support Israel? And is it a question of, do they really want to convert the Jews? And those were the things that were debated. It wasn't debated whether they were actually in bed with people in their party who want to kill Jews and think Hitler was
1: right. And now the situation is not only do they coexist, but they support each other.
0: Right. You won't see major figures on the Christian right, like the political power players condemning Marjorie Taylor Greene for having gone to speak at the Fuentes conference, or you won't see anybody condemning Carrie Lake or even Doug Mastriano. The Republican Jewish Committee, which called on Mastriano to cut ties with Andrew Torba, the Christian nationalist, anti-Semitic CEO of the social media company Gab. They called on him to cut ties with Torba, but they acted like... That that was mm-hmm. Mastriano's only transgression. And every day they're sending out email alerts, basically trying to gin up people's outrage about pro-Palestinian Jewish students at colleges. As if that's the greatest anti-Semitic threat in America. If you only got their emails, you would think that. They never mention the rampant anti-Semitism in their own party. It's just really astonishing.
1: Yeah. Or that in... L.A. on the highway overpass, signs being Kanye was right, that this is just what happens in 2022. I think that there's the normalization that sets in. There's the not mentioning it, let alone calling it out.
0: They're acting like it's not happening.
1: Even though it is throughout campaigns and now it leaks into other aspects of popular culture and society and people commenting yeah. who should not right i mean have a you platform. know the fact
0: that you know <laughs> Kanye and Kyrie Irving and you're seeing all these very popular artists musicians sports figures whatever i think that figures in the republican party have lined up the supporters and the enemies And the supporters will never be condemned for anything that they do. And the enemies will constantly be vilified for whatever
1: they do. Speaking of the enemy making that what we refer to on the show as the Republic Fascist Party Mm -hmm. has done, you can't help but notice a focus, a honing in on a new enemy. And that, in my opinion, would be the targeting of the trans community, in particular and most concerning of trans youth. And I know that this has been something that you've done some some serious writing on. And I just wanted to start with why do you think that this fascist movement has focused so much hatred Mm -hmm. (laughs) and targeted so much rage against the trans community?
0: Well, I think that It actually started around 2014, 2015, in the lead up to Obergefell, the Supreme Court decision legalizing same-sex marriage, and in the aftermath of Obergefell. So basically what the right was seeing was the realization that gay people and same-sex families and all of it was culturally accepted by the Supreme Court. And they look at Obergefell as their new Roe. To them, they will aim to eventually overturn Obergefell, just like they this year overturned Roe, nearly 50 years on. So they're willing to wait that long. But think of all the things they did in the interim before they got Dobbs. Trap laws, abortion restrictions, all of that stuff. That is the playbook that they're going to use against Obergefell. So why trans kids? Why trans people and in particular trans kids? Well, to them, I think it became obvious that targeting the trans community, they could incite fear and disgust and panic, not just among their followers, but among people who might otherwise be perfectly fine with Obergefell and and marriage equality and all of that it's very similar to the way they ginned up the panic about critical race theory. They knew they could get their own base to freak out about it, but they thought maybe they could get other people to freak out about it too. And see how it always centers on kids. It always centers on the idea that public schools are, or weird doctors or academics are trying to twist your child's brain and recruit them into something that's dangerous and scary and un-American or whatever. That's kind of the model. And so you take something that you know, your base is really ginned up about, but you think maybe you can get other people on board too. And I think that that was precisely the strategy with their long anti-trans efforts I was in Texas in 2014, 15, reporting on their efforts to have one of these bathroom bells that require trans people to use the bathroom associated with the gender on their birth certificate. They started with that because they thought like people would be really scared that trans women would go into bathrooms, that they would rape your innocent wife or daughter. But I think they then began to think of other ways to scare parents about trans youth. So then they moved on to sports. Oh, your daughter might not win the track championship because there's a trans girl on the opposing team. All of these things are sort of targeted not at the Christian right base, but at other constituencies. And I think that that's what they're trying with these anti-trans healthcare bans. I recently wrote a piece about a bill that became law in Arkansas that bans all gender affirming care for trans people under the age of 18. A court held it for a preliminary injunction, held it unconstitutional, now there's a trial going on to determine its constitutionality. But it's all based on lies about what the medical establishment has determined about gender-affirming care, that it's life-saving care for trans kids. It's not just that they're trying to scare parents but that they're about trans adults grooming their children or something like that, which was like the bathroom argument. You know, they're basically trying to say that the medical establishment has it wrong, that in fact, puberty blockers are bad for you, or hormone replacement therapy is bad for you. And these are just experimental and they're performing experiments on your children. And it's all just lies, but they sow enough little doubt for people like they did with the critical race theory panic. Oh, maybe it is this really terrible thing that's being injected into public schools. And maybe this is really bad for my kids. And it's maddening for the medical community because they say, we know, know this has been the standard of care for years. It's a combination of targeting the most vulnerable, but also targeting them in such a way that you could potentially expand the reach of your very ugly arguments.
1: Yeah, I think that it's twofold, expanding who you can onboard into the attack Mm -hmm. and also consistently expanding the group that you're targeting, gradually or not so gradually in certain areas, expanding the target.
0: That's a really good point about and talking about expanding the target, you know, so Arkansas starts with basically declaring gender affirming care illegal, and basically it prevents healthcare providers from providing it. Then Texas decides we're going to call it child abuse and we're going to investigate parents for child abuse who take their kids to the doctor for gender affirming care. Can you think of another example where you take your kid to the doctor for the health care that the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Medical Association and all of them say is the standard of care and you get investigated for child abuse? It's beyond
1: the pale. Each time this goes down without. A complete uproar and people refusing it and resisting it in all the ways that they can, it spreads. And I think that that is exactly what they're banking on. You know, going back to your point of this being something that there's enough confusion around or enough seeds of doubt, that leads people to not stand up and fight against it. Even if people aren't for it, they're not actively opposing it. And that complicity then works in their favor. It combines the flooding the zone, if you will. But that's
0: the effect of basically creating a panic.
1: Yeah, working off of entrenched patriarchy and traditional gender norms. And this being the same country that's polling at 45% saying we're a Christian nation. So I think that there's things that they're working on. Mm -hmm. It's not a blank field. And I think that those of us who care? Which are many, many people, and I don't want to discount the the people that do care about reality, science, and compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, should be not silent. Should be very loud. And I think that a lot of what you brought forward gives people the language to do just that. So I appreciate your insight and breakdown. As we close out our conversation, we are talking eight days before the midterms. And I wanted to get your thoughts on what are you thinking about in this moment in relation to the, if you want to think about it as the Christian nationalist threat or the GOP more broadly, what do you think we need to pay attention to?
0: Well, I think there are two things that need to be paid attention to next Tuesday. One is the multitude of local races for attorney general, election officer, secretary of state, whatever the top election official is in a state or county. And to what extent are we going to be facing a situation where there's going to be a top election official who won't certify an election that's not in favor of a Republican and how widespread that is going to be. because it's not like there's just going to be one thing that happens. There's going to be races where that the election denier wins and races that the election denier loses. But I think we have to pay attention to all of those, and in particular to the top races for Governor, Secretary of State in states where the candidates have been really upfront about their views on that, like Pennsylvania and Mastriano or Arizona and Kerry Lake as pretty prominent examples there. We have to be prepared for the possibility, some of the pollsters would say, the probability that the Republicans will retake the House of Representatives. Not only will that be spun by the political press as evidence that the policies and views of the Republican Party are favored by the American public, which I don't think is true, But we will also have to contend with somebody like Jim Jordan being the chair of the Judiciary Committee and having to go through sort of insane, ridiculous, fact-free investigations of Merrick Garland or Anthony Fauci or whatever they gin up, Benghazi on steroids. I think we have to be very aware of how that gets covered by the national press and to talk about it. and point out in any way that we can when the national press kind of both sides these kinds of things. Like, well, you know, the Democrats impeached Trump. It's like, well, okay, right. You know, because Trump was like the most criminal president in American history. That's why they impeached him. And so there's going to be a lot of gaslighting and both sides if they take control of the house. And if they take control of the Senate too, which I hope is unlikely, but I think a lot of these races are on a knife's edge. That's... all bets are off then. But I think that the possibility of the Republicans retaking the House puts us in a position where it's going to be very important to contest these kinds of both siding of their show trial kinds of investigations that they've already signaled that they're gonna do.
1: Thank you, Sarah, for coming on, for sharing your perspective, your expertise, your insight with us, and of course your time. In the show notes, you'll be able to find links to some of the articles that we mentioned and Sarah's Twitter as well. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you. Take care.
1: For more on Doug Mastriano and the threat of theocracy, check out Christopher Mathias' latest up on HuffPost. He writes, quote, if polls, not prophecies, are to be believed, Mastriano will be clobbered by his Democratic opponent, Josh Shapiro, in Tuesday's election. But his likely defeat shouldn't distract from what Mastriano represents, the ongoing radicalization of the Republican Party into a sect that sees its victory as inevitable and predestined from above, and which paints its opponents as the literal incarnations of the devil in need of vanquishing. In this view, democracy is merely a roadblock in a divine quest for domination, end quote. See Doug Mastriano's Prophets in Pennsylvania in the show notes to read and full. For more on the Christian rights role in voter suppression, I recommend checking out Annika Brockschmidt's latest on Open Democracy, also linked in the show notes. Thanks for listening to Refuse Fascism. We want to hear from you. Share your thoughts, questions, ideas for topics or guests, or lend a skill. Tweet me at Sam B. Goldman, drop me a line at Samantha Goldman at refusefascism.org, or leave a voicemail by visiting anchor.fm forward slash refuse-fascism and hitting that message button. Want to support the show? It's simple. Show us some love by rating and reviewing on an Apple Podcasts or your listening platform of choice. And of course, follow, subscribe so you never miss an episode. When you share this show, you're helping change the way people think that prevents them from taking necessary action, helping people look at uncomfortable truths and act with daring. Together, we're forging understanding and relationships aimed at preventing the consolidation of fascism in the United States. Chip in to support our content creation. We have no sponsors. We count on you. Donate by visiting refusefascism.org and hitting that donate button. Thanks to Richie Marini, Lena Thorne, and Mark Tinkleman for helping produce this episode. Thanks to incredible volunteers, we have transcripts available for each episode. So be sure to visit refusefascism.org and sign up to get them in your inbox each week. We'll be back next Sunday. Until then, in the name of humanity, we refuse to accept a fascist America.